Podcast One. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. Well, we had the British Behavioural Economics and Intellectual Powerhouse Rory Sutherland on a few months back to talk the big global picture on the rise again of behavioural economics. But this time we're hitting the street level in Australia. There's been a lot of brand and marketer interest in the idea this year, so we're going to get a fast track on what's been happening in this market. With us today is Andrea Bernard, General Manager of Marketing and Sales at Simply Energy, which is ultimately part of the French global utility giant Engie. I'd love to say Angers, but Andrea tells me that that's completely wrong. It's got revenues of $60 billion euro. And Dan Monheit, co-founder of Hard Hat, who's been a behavioural economics freak for a decade and has seen a material lift in interest from brands and marketers this year on the concept. So welcome to you both. And to Dan first, for those vaguely aware of what behavioural economics is, give us an elevator pitch on it and the version that's perfect, I really, for, for those in the media and marketing sector, which are a bit ADD, like myself. What's important about behavioural economics, Dan, and why are we missing a trick without it? Hey, Paul, thanks for having me on the show. Really, at the core of behavioural economics is a, not just an acceptance, but really a two-armed embrace of the fact that we are not as rational decision makers as we'd like we, to think we were. So the historical schools of economics that looked at the way people make decisions was all about us being almost robots, making decisions with lots and lots of information and trying to make the perfect choice every time. And what behavioural economics has come along really since the 1950s and, and acknowledged is that we don't really make perfect rational decisions. And most of the time, our decisions are influenced by bias and emotion and the context within which we're making the decision. And once you understand that that is what's happening and that's how the majority of our decisions are getting made, we get to start building brands and campaigns and, and ideas around it. Dan, why do we still think we are rational when all the science says we're not? Business behaviour tends to just really default to rational. What's going on there? What are we missing? I can give you a, a very brief uh, biological reason why. So we've, we've got a, a part in our brain called the prefrontal cortex, which is the big chunk up the front, takes up around 12 to 15% of our brain. From an evolutionary perspective, it is the newest part and really the part that only exists in humans. And that is the part of our brain that does all of the logical, rational, long-term thinking and planning. And, and we sort of believe that as humans and the only species that has that part of the brain, that's probably how we make all of our decisions. But what we found is there's actually another part at the back of the brain called our reptilian brain. It's about 300 million years in the making. It is the most um, primal part of our brain. It is the bit driven by all of our core, you know, lit, uh, fear, greed, lust, desire to reproduce, desire for status. Um, as it turns out, that is the thing, like in most animals, that is making most of our decisions. And we have this prefrontal cortex bit at the front that kind of acts like a PR department making wonderful, logical, rational stories to explain the thing that our reptilian brain just impulsively and invisibly decided. So, yes, you bought the sports car for the fuel efficiency. Yes, right. Or that designer handbag because of the way it fits your laptop just perfectly. Got it. And so apart from upsetting the PR people now, Dan, thanks, thanks for that. They do a great job. They do a great job. <laughs> I guess the sense there is that your argument is that um, as an industry, as a, as a marketing uh, media and tech industry, um, that we spend a lot of time trying to influence choice but we don't necessarily understand 
how those choices are being made. Um, despite all the research that we that we spend lots of money on and understanding consumer sentiment, what what's wrong with that, and what we're doing? Well, I mean, it is odd because you're right. We do we have almost dedicated our careers to influencing choice, and we spend a lot of time thinking about how other things work. We think about how, you know, we're interested in how programmatic works and how TikTok works and how attribution modeling works. But we don't really ask how people work and how do people make the decisions that they make. And I think what is incredible and what I find really inspiring and enlightening about the field of behavioral science or behavioral economics is that there is decades of peer-reviewed research, there is hard evidence that demonstrates consistent biases that humans are prone to. As an industry, we've largely ignored until the last 10 years, and it just seems odd to me and exciting to be you know, one of the people helping marketers understand and, and appreciate this stuff. And you have noted um, that there's, there's quite a bit of interest, and I'm, I'm busting to get to Andrea in a second about um, her views on all this, but you've noted some significant uptake this year in interest and, and, and perhaps really applied interest uh, from, from brands and marketers. Yeah, I mean, this is a, a thing that, as you said, uh, not necessarily how I would have described it, but I have been a behavioural economics freak for, for well over a decade. And as an agency, we've really leaned into this um, built-on behaviour positioning in the last 18 months. In the last six months, so since you know, since lockdown started and it looked like the whole world was going to crap, I mean, we have leaned in hard, and as a result, I think we're averaging bringing on board one new client every three weeks since March, and that is clients across major FMCG brands, multiple government departments, fintech startups, retailers. It just seems to be striking a chord that there is real science behind what we're talking about here, and it's easily understood science because you explain these principles to people and they can see it in their own behavior and realize that, oh, if that's a thing we could tap into, I see how that could work for my brand or my business. So quickly run us through these things called uh, heuristics. This is, this is the, for the dummies bit. If you've, uh, stay with us if you're across behavioral economics a little deeper than I am because uh, Andrea's got some re- really good examples of how her business has applied it. But the heuristics for, for we dummies, Dan, give it to us quickly what they, what they are. For sure. So at the middle of behavioral economics is this idea of heuristics which are consistent, predictable quirks that shape our decision-making and often result in us doing things that you wouldn't logically or rationally consider to be the correct or the most obvious choice. So there are somewhere between two and 300 of them. There's probably 15 or 20 that I spend most of my time thinking about. And just to to make it tangible, to give you an example of one, so one heuristic is a a concept called temporal discounting. And so that is the idea that we reduce the value of something the further off it is into the future. And the further away and the hazier it is, the more quickly we discount the value of it and the more likely we are to trade it for something in the here and now. So What does that look like, Dan, for example? Well, that looks like every kind of poor human behavior. So, you know, I know that future Dan objectively, rationally wants a comfortable retirement and a six pack. But I also know that today Dan wants new sneakers and a donut. So today Dan usually wins. And this is really hard for brands and whole categories that are selling future benefits, whether that's higher education or superannuation. When you realize that people are wired to massively over-index immediate gains, which makes sense evolutionary, like tomorrow was never a given, you have to think about how you promote your product in a way that's motivating in the short term, not just in 5, 10, 30, 40, 50 years from now. So right. So for those businesses that do have a long-term cycle, for instance, they have to think very hard about how they present a now benefit. 
Absolutely. So, I mean, you know, the, the addition of mint and foaming agents to toothpaste is a perfect example where, you know, the actual long-term benefits you get from brushing your teeth are nothing to do with the foam or the mintiness, but adding the foaming and the mintiness gives us immediate feedback that what we're doing is working. We've been educated to brush our teeth for fresh breath, which is a nice side benefit. But without those things happening in the early 1900s, um, it would have been very hard for brushing our teeth to have caught on as a concept because it's, you know, two minutes twice a day for decades of your life to hopefully get a benefit in your old age when you still want to be able to eat hard food. But we have now avoided a gummy nation. It's, pardon the pun. it's true. So Andrea, that's all, that's fascinating stuff. And, I, and as to your point, Dan, there's sort of 13, I think you say there's 13 to 15 of them that are particularly relevant for, for marketers, brands, product product, service, and so forth? Yeah, there are hundreds. You could probably drill down to 30 or 40 that are, that are pretty easy to do things with. And I've spent the last six months really going hard at about 12 that I think given the current lockdown situation and where the sort of reset the world's getting, there's a dozen that I think are really um, relevant, highly relevant at the moment. Andrea, sorry it's taken so long to get to you, but I'm, I'm busting to hear your, your, your take on this because when did behavioral economics for you, when did it sit on your, land on your radar, I guess? It lands on the radar most for marketers when you're faced with a challenge. And for us, that really cropped up about 18 months ago. Um, and that's certainly when we started working with Dan. Um, so in industry, you know, the the idea of behavioral economics has been around a long time, but actually getting into the crux of how we can use it and why we should use it has been a relatively new advent. So what happened for you 18 months ago? What was the, the, the road to Damascus experience? Maybe what happened to Simply Energy is <laughs> I arrived. <laughs> I got there and I think um, the business was looking to um, take it to the next level, you know, that had heaps of growth and that had almost been organic. Um, and then we were sort of looking at how do we actually take ourselves um, up a notch and become the sort of king of the tier two energy uh, providers. And we're certainly sitting in that position today. So for the for, for the audience, uh, your competitive set are the, are the big brands. Who are they? That's AGL, that's Energy Australia, and that's Origin Energy. Right. Okay. So trying to get traction against those players, you saw an opportunity here. Yeah, absolutely. And we're a challenger brand. So, you know, challenge is in our DNA. Um, and so we've been using behavioral economics to really um, make our marketing efforts and our pricing efforts and our sales efforts work much harder. We don't have the luxury of massive budgets. Um, so we're sort of taking it to the big guys with um, small dollars, but big ideas. So give us an example of what was your first first rollout or first execution or application of this, Andrea? Yeah, well, first of all, we realised um, that we absolutely needed to understand customer perceptions and choice architecture. Um, so we worked really closely um, with the guys at Hard Hat, um, but also with some other providers to make sure that we could get past this issue of only being considered on the price front. And if you ask any customer about why they choose their energy company, it's because they're the cheapest or they get the best deal. But actually what we understood under understand really was that it wasn't necessarily the price, it was the uncertainty around that price. And so we've got an awesome um, app that we call Tracker um, through our My Account app. And you can receive every week, even if you want to get it by email, you can, um, an email that tells you how much you've spent that week. And removing that uncertainty was actually way more impactful um, to satisfaction and loyalty and reducing the number of people that called us when they got their bill than actually reducing the overall price of energy. Well, that's a great example, isn't it? What we talked about earlier about the rational, that's because right. the rational says to it says discount price off, but actually it was the fear around the unknown. Classic example. 
Yeah, absolutely. And if we had stuck with um, just focusing on that sort of price point up front, which don't get me wrong, is super important, we would only be playing in that space. And that's just a race to the bottom for any industry, but certainly in the energy category. So that was your first uh, sort of execution from behavioural economics theory, but actually as practice, really. How else is behavioural economics influencing what you do? The B2B example of that is understanding the mechanics behind the zero risk bias. And that's really given rise to a very specific product for us called the Power Purchase Agreement. And that's where you've got to ask yourself um, as a business owner, do you want to outlay uh, many thousands of dollars to put solar on your roof, even if it makes financial sense in the long run to get a smaller energy bill, it's a, it's a tough gig. You know, people are sort of bulking at that kind of investment. So the PPA or Power Purchase Agreement was introduced where basically we take the risk, you know, NG takes the risk and we install the power um, or the panels on your roof. And then the customer starts saving from the very minute that the panels are turned on. They've paid nothing at this point. And then they pay back the panels through the savings that they're making. So, you know, that has really taken capital outlay off the list for B2B customers and certainly helped us roll out solar much more broadly. Clearly it's landed then. It's landed really well. It's landed for us. It's landed for some of our competitors too, because it is such a good idea. Uh, And so how does all this, for instance, so they're great examples of almost product and service developments um, and innovations. How does it play or influence uh, what you're, how you're communicating, what you're advertising, uh, what you're saying in your advertising and, and your media mix perhaps? Yeah, so we are very focused on making sure that every media dollar that we spend is really attributable and accountable. Um, so we use things like social proof when we're entering new markets. Um, we leverage insights into loss aversion in our digital marketing. And honestly, the mere exposure effect is just a good name for something that all marketers have probably been doing a long time. Um, But it's really important for us to understand how that effect actually helps make our sponsorship dollars work harder. Okay, Dan, you're going to explain a couple of things to us there. Uh, Social proof loss aversion. Um, So Andrea clearly knows what they are. I don't. What does that mean? (laughs) I know it's funny. She's come over to the dark side. So once you're in this world, you forget what it's like to not know all, all the cheat codes. So social proof is our natural desire to want to be with the group. Uh, safety in numbers made sense for us historically and even today we, we would much rather stand outside a full restaurant and wait for a table than cross the street and eat at an empty one even though rationally and pragmatically that would make more sense so when Andrea talks about using social proof when Simply Energy are expanding into new markets where maybe they're not known so well social proof and talking about how many other you know hundreds of thousands of happy households or millions of Australians are already with Simply Energy helps people realise this is a safe choice and it's going to be okay for me as well. And I think that was Andrea, in the context of B2B, that one. So that's reassuring other businesses, was it, that in terms of social proofing? We do it across both markets. We actually just recently entered Western Australia, you know, super parochial, and I can say that because I'm from there, but um, social proof played a big role there in making sure that customers over in WA um, knew that they were making a good choice in relation to other customers in WA. Yes, well, you want to succeed, don't you still? Isn't that the case in WA? <laughs> Look, you know, we're just really an awesome state that really should be a country. We can't <laughs> that's right. So the other one, uh, Dan, that uh, Andrea talked about was loss aversion. Talk us through. Sure. So loss aversion is our natural desire to um, feel losses significantly more than we would feel the equivalent gain. So lots and lots of research into this has demonstrated that the the emotional toll of a loss is about twice as much as the equivalent gain. So if you'd lost $100 in the street, you would need to find $200 to come out emotionally even. So if you think about this from a messaging perspective, we might be inclined to talk about things as gains, you know, sign up and get X, Y, and Z, but uh, we are far more motivated to avoid losses. So it's often better to frame things as you are possibly missing out on 
A, B, and C. Got it, Dan. Now, Andrew, you did talk about this other thing called the mere exposure effect. What the hell's that? So what it says on the label, the, the mere exposure to a repeated stimulus over and over again can cause us to uh, ultimately favour that. So it's the same as you know, when you see uh, a story come up in your newsfeed multiple times, you might not click it the first two or three times you see it, but by time seven or eight, something just compels you to to go and have a look. Okay. We're going to wrap it up soon because there's a great little run-in on what's happening in the Australian market. But um, you did say earlier, Dan, that you've got maybe 12 to 15 of these heuristics, I think is what uh, we're talking about here. What are those other ones in a, in a fast, furious way? What, are, what do they sound like and what are they? <laughs> this is the, the lightning round. All right, let's do it. So <laughs> we've got choice paradox, which is the, the idea that we love having choices but are quickly overwhelmed when we have too many options to pick from. Uh, we have the licensing effect, which is our innate desire to want to balance off our virtuous and our indulgent selves. So if you've been to gym this morning, you're probably more susceptible to having a burger for lunch. Because you feel like you've justified it, you mean? You've, you've earned it, right? You deserve it. Right. Um, so the licensing effect actually explains a lot of very, very poor <laughs> decision making that we make. Right. We've got effort bias, which is our natural uh, inclination to assign more value to something if we feel that more effort has gone into it. So a, a painting that took 17 hours is going to be perceived as more valuable than the same painting if we thought it took four hours. Right. We have zero risk bias that Andrea alluded to, which is the idea that any reduction in risk is good, but the complete elimination of risk is disproportionately good and something people will pay a premium for. We've got the halo effect, which is our tendency to take a first or, or a prominent um, aspect of somebody's personality and apply it to their whole being. Right. So we see brands use this in some really interesting ways with, with sponsorships and endorsement deals. We've got projection bias, which is the idea that our current self thinks it knows what our future self wants, but actually has no idea, which is why we want wine today and end up signing up for weekly wine deliveries for the next five years. Classic. Yeah, we have scarcity bias, uh, which is you know fairly common and obvious idea that just the perception that something is limited in time or quantity or availability makes us value it and want to pay for it more. We have the peak end rule, which shows us that we remember experiences not by the average of how we felt through the experience, but by the peak emotional experiences, whether they were high or low, and how we felt at the end. So um, this is all about designing experiences that have a couple of deliberate 15 out of 10 moments instead of trying to make everything a smooth 9 out of 10, which is largely forgettable. The, the last one is temporal discounting, which I think we already spoke about, but it's all about the short term. There's another 15 hours of conversation here, Dan, because there's some drill downs there, I think. So we haven't got time on this podcast to get to it, but fascinating stuff. I want to ask you, Andrew, before we wind up, if you didn't do the two or three uh, heuristics from behavioral economics that you've been applying from 18 months ago, what would have happened now? What would your business look like and what would you be doing? Oh God, I'm probably doing not much. Um, might be at home <laughs> on my own. Wouldn't be on this podcast, that's for sure. But I think what we would have been doing is more of the same. And what we all know is that if we keep doing the same thing and expecting a different outcome, um, we're a bit nuts. So um, growth is hard to get when you start to actually get big. So our growth is really now coming from smart, smart moves rather than just the, doing the same as we've always done. And so you'd say to your peers in marketing and sales then that behavioural economics is, 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 is a real thing that should be deployed and applied? I'd be saying to marketers that they've got to look at this now because they actually need to take what they already know um, and add a bit of flavour over the top, not just understand how to market well, but why what works works and what doesn't work is something that we should really stop. And that circles right back to, down to the, around to the start, doesn't it, Dan, about we, we spend a lot of time in the industry trying to influence choice, but not necessarily uh, why choices are made. It gets us right back to the beginning, really. Perfect. Sounds like a perfect time to wrap things up then. <laughs> oh, you want to go. I take your point. 
report no. then. Take the hint. <laughs> no, it's, um, I have got one final question for you, Dan, which is what's next and, and what is behavioural economics? What's going to happen in 2021? Do you, do you genuinely see this as something now that's um, sort of going to land and stay in the marketer's uh, toolkit or is it just another shiny thing that'll come and go? I mean, I feel like as far as shiny things go, I mean, this one is 300 million years in the making. So, you know, it's, it's pretty resilient. It's pretty robust. I think it is deep foundational knowledge for any any marketer and you know even if you learn it and you don't get to use it at work i promise it'll make you more interesting at dinner parties because you you end up observing and understanding things that happen all around you every day that uh, a lot of people just don't even realize is happening well andrea bernard dan monheit let's go to dinner and have a conversation by the sounds of it we'll have it'll be a good one sounds great (laughs) can we get out yes exactly can we that's been a really good teaser uh dan and andrea so thanks for joining and and i I suspect we'll uh we'll do something more uh stay safe and and we will talk soon thank you thanks paul mi3 audio edition was presented by paul mcintyre that's moi in collaboration with podcast one australia Producer Nick Slater, music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au or search MI3 Audio Edition on Apple Podcasts and hit the subscribe button.